the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet. Speak now, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, if you're if you're visiting this morning, uh, my my name is Chris. I'm the founding pastor uh, here at King's Cross, uh, and we're coming up on, on on almost two years now since we we launched publicly in 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 this room. Praise God for that, right? Do uh, you that have been with us? There you go. Uh, Michaela's really excited uh, about that. Uh, the rest of you, I'll pray for you. Uh, uh, but hey, like one one of the uh, one of the things that the, the, the I guess great uh, just privileges uh, and joys that I have uh, as a pastor of a church plant is it gives me a lot of opportunity uh, to to share with 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 people, uh, with friends, with uh, ministry partners, with other churches and networks, uh, just the great work that God is doing here at, at King's Cross. Uh, as a young church plant, uh, we are uh, just dependent on the prayers of others, on the support of others. Um, uh, Oscar did a great job on explaining and just praying uh, about what, what it means to just give generously. And uh, 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 we've had so many just ministry partners and, and churches uh, and like uh, a couple large networks uh, that are supporting the work that we're doing here at, at, at King's Cross. And so um, a big part of uh, just my job going into the end of the year as, as churches and individuals are thinking about like their end of year giving is just to, to really amp up uh, my conversations uh, with people asking uh, for prayer, um, asking if they would prayerfully uh, consider uh, supporting uh, our work. And uh, I just want to share that with, with you guys so that you can join me uh, in, in just praying uh, for that. Um, uh, but also, um, as, as you guys are prayerfully considering what end of year giving looks like uh, for you, uh, I just want to ask as your friend, as, as your pastor, if King's Cross is, is your home church, uh, uh, that you would prayerfully consider uh, what that might look like uh, for you and your family. And so um, you'll hear uh, a little bit more about that uh, in, in the weeks and over the next uh, couple months that we've got coming up uh, ahead of us. But uh, man, it, it is seriously just a joy uh, to meet so many different people like all across the nation uh, and sometimes across the world uh, that, that know about you guys, that are praying uh, for and, and sometimes supporting financially the work that God is doing in, in our church. And so uh, I hope that you guys are encouraged by that. 
in the same way that, that I have been. Uh, and uh, I just want to make sure to, to share that with you and ask you guys to, to, to pray with me to that end. So uh, with that, let me pray for us this morning as we get into God's word. Uh, and then we'll dig into Haggai chapter 2. Uh, pray with me. Lord God, we begin by asking that you would help us to have a clear picture of you uh, in, in this text. Holy Spirit, would you just teach us, would you instruct us and inform us and convict us, empower us to see the beauty of Christ and his mission uh, through us. And we just ask, Lord, that our time in your word, in the scriptures, would be pleasing to you and profitable to us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So uh, when, 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 I was in, uh, when I was in like grade school, like around third or fourth grade, uh, I went through this, this phase where I was like really uh, fascinated with microscopes and telescopes. And uh, I know exactly what you're thinking. Like it sounds like Pastor Chris was really cool. <laughs> I was. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's how popular I was, all right? I was like really into telescopes in, in, in like fourth grade. Well, if, if you know anything uh, about the history of telescopes, which of course you do, right? <laughs> like uh, you remember this, this era, the 1800s, when it, uh, they, they called it the era of great uh, refractors. Um, I'm just curious, like how many people actually like, rem- like remember learning about this? Anyone? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Dennis Cragen, my man. Uh, the era of great refractors. That's when they first started to manufacture, to make like just the biggest glass lenses that they've ever been able uh, to make. Like the first zoomed in picture of the moon we ever had was, was taken around that time, the era of uh, great refractors. It was taken with a great refractor, like a giant lens that was thick in the middle and helped you just really zoom in far away. And, and, and Neptune was discovered in the 1800s through the use of a great refractor. And we started to measure the distance between stars and light years for the first time through the use of great refractor lenses. And all this excitement with this era kind of uh, continued on, like all these new discoveries because of these great refractor lenses happened in the early and middle uh, 1800s, but that excitement started to, to sizzle down, bubble away by the late 1800s because of, of, of something called lens sagging. Because when lenses were so big, like as big as they would make them for these telescopes, uh, over over time, over like a decade or two, the middle of these lenses, because the glass was was so thick and heavy in, in the middle, would slowly start to droop over the years as gravity would pull down on the glass and they kind of had to go back to the drawing board to say like how can we make these things things last and and then suddenly uh with the with lens sagging the the view of the heavens started to blur out of focus we started to lose clarity on on all these new things that we were discovering in the same way this is what happens when we start to get maybe derailed or we start to get discouraged in our identity as a church, 
This is what happens when we start to get derailed or maybe discouraged in our identity as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus. When the weight of the world or the weight of maybe our unmet expectations begin to weigh down on us, the, the clarity of our perspective of who God is, all that we're discovering about him, what it means to, to follow him and our purpose in the world as followers of him, all that begins to blur and get out of focus. And that is what happens to God's people in Haggai chapter 2. You see, if you remember the history that we went over uh, to the book of Haggai is that after, being, after the people have been exiled from the land, after they've been taken from their land by the Babylonians, they were eventually brought back by God to rebuild their identity as his people to rebuild their identity as worshipers of Yahweh, worshipers of the Lord. And, uh, but instead, after they return, shortly after they returned, uh, they, they find themselves, uh, they, uh, they were just caught pouring into their own lives, pouring into their own houses, into their own kingdom instead of God's. We looked at that in the first sermon through Haggai. And so, and so what happened was God, in his mercy, he sends a prophet, named Haggai, who the book is named after. And this prophet Haggai speaks to the people. God in his mercy, he sends Haggai to speak to the people to say, hey, God didn't save you. He didn't redeem you. He didn't bring you back from captivity just so that you would invest in your own comforts instead of in his kingdom. God didn't deliver you so that you would be spending the next 15 years building up your own name in neglect of his, which is exactly what they were doing. Now, did God have to do that? Did God have to send Haggai to this people? Which was an act of mercy, right? Like, did God have to send Haggai to these people? Like, does God owe us anything at all? No. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us his word. He doesn't owe them a prophet. He could have just left them to be destroyed by their own selfish appetites, but instead out of love, out of grace, out of mercy, he sends Haggai to stir their hearts back to him to true life, to true human flourishing. He loves them too much to leave them, as we said, nibbling at the table of the world when they can feast at his table. And so Haggai encourages the people, get back to the good work. Get back to God's good plan and purposes for you. God isn't done with you guys yet. He's got big things in store for you. He's got big things that he's going to accomplish through you. Like rebuilding the temple so that, so that he can restore your faith and so that you can shine as a nation of light in a dark and broken world. And sure enough, through the word of Haggai and the Spirit of God, sure enough, the Spirit stirs in the hearts of all of the people. 50,000 people that came back, he stirs in their hearts, fires them up, and they have this renewed clarity in their mission that we, we studied last week. 
They repent and they joyfully return, joyfully return to the work of the Lord. And what we see now as we enter into chapter 2 is that the people have been working and serving for several weeks now maybe a little less than that, like about a month. Uh, they've been working at it. They, they repent. They're joyfully serving. They're at the work of rebuilding the temple for about a month. The foundation is laid. They're all excited. They're all pumped. They're all fired up. But then something derails them. Discouragement starts to set in. And what was once a clear perspective that they had on what God was calling them to and who God was calling them to be, what was once a clear perspective now starts to go blurry, out of focus. And so Haggai, again, the prophet of the Lord sent by God's mercy, Haggai enters the narrative again in chapter 2 with a message to help them see again a clear perspective once more. So the first thing we're going to look at in the first few verses is how uh, they were derailed by discouragement. The thing that derailed them was discouragement. I want you to start reading uh, how this discouragement came in in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, "In, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now, Really quick, this time stamp, this, this date stamp tells us a couple things. Uh, by the way, this is one of the most, of all the Old Testament books, I mean, it's one of the shortest, but it's also one of the most detailed books in all the scriptures when it comes to dates. You'll notice it keeps saying like on, on this day of this month, like all throughout uh, this short book, which helps us verify historically when this takes place. Uh, but it also tells us exactly when these messages were delivered by Haggai. And when you, and when, and when, and when you uh, kind of study uh, uh, the Jewish calendar, what you see is, uh, well, first of all, uh, that this is happening a month from uh, when they repented in chapter 1, because we got the date stamp from that. And so about four to five weeks have gone by. Uh, but then also, if you look at the Jewish calendar, you know that based on this description, seventh month on the 21st day of the month, that this is happening during what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time for celebration. It was a time that the people would remember how God provided for them, how he got them through the days in the desert, the exile in the desert. And so they would, one of the things that they would do is they would gather all of the crops. They would gather all of the grapes and and the crops and they would say, hey, look at this. Look at this abundance. Look what God did. Look how he's provided for us. God, you're so good to us. And so this was a time of celebration for them, especially in this moment. If you remember in chapter 1, they'd experiencing droughts. They didn't have any grapes on, on, on the vine. Uh, and, 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 and God was kind of kind of trying to, to, to get them back on track. And so they've, they've, uh, they've, they've gotten back on schedule. The crops are coming in. It should be a celebration, a time of celebration. But instead of celebrating, we see that they're discouraged. We see in these next couple verses that they get derailed again. 
they're starting to lose clear perspective. So a question I want us to sort of look at the lens, if, if we, we want to use that, that word again, so it, the, the, I want us to, to look through in these next few verses is, 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 does this ever happen to you? Does that ever happen to you? Like, can that happen to us where you find God doing amazing things uh, uh, through you, doing amazing things around you? He's inviting you more into what it means to grow in him and to follow him, but somehow you get derailed. And somehow you get discouraged. Could that happen to us? Could that happen to you in your walk? Could that happen to us as as a church where what should be a time of celebration and rejoicing turns into a time of of getting derailed and discouraged? Absolutely. Absolutely that can happen. That's what happens to the people here in Haggai 2. I mean, read what happens to them in the next couple verses. So Haggai now, he comes with another message uh, from the Lord. In verse 2, he says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant, all the 50,000 people that came back from captivity, all the remnant of the people, and say, and here's where we discover the source of their discouragement. It says in verse 3, Say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Here's what's happening. Haggai's saying, hey, who's left among you who saw this temple, who saw this house in its former glory? He's saying, all right, by show of hands, how many of you remnants, how many of you guys were here 70 years ago and remember Solomon's temple and all of its splendor and all of its glory? Now, by the way, when God gives them this message through Haggai, God's not like trying to rub their, their noses into it. What he's doing is God's saying like, hey, look, I know what's going on in your heart. I know you're playing this comparison game to, to the, this, this kind of janky setup that, that, that's kind of coming right now as, you're, as, as you guys are rebuilding the temple. And I, I, I know in your heart that you're comparing that to the good old days, that there's no comparison. And so God says, says through Haggai, look, I know what's going on in your heart. By show of hands, how many of you were here 70 years ago? Remember Solomon's temple in all of its splendor and beauty and, 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 and glory? Because the old temple of Solomon was glorious. It was huge. Seventy years earlier, though, the Babylonians, they came in and destroyed it. And there were about 50,000 people now that are part of the remnant that have returned to rebuilding the city, rebuilding that temple. And of that group, there was this smaller slice of people from this older generation who were actually there 70 years earlier before when that original temple was destroyed, before that temple was destroyed. And so Haggai says, how many of you saw this spiritual house, this temple in its former glory? And then he asks, how do you see it now? 
What does it look like now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now this verse, this verse overlaps what's happening in, in Ezra chapter 3. The events that are happening in Haggai uh, coincide with the book of Ezra. And in Ezra 3, what we see is that what happened is that as the remnant begin working at the temple again, as they repent and start working at the temple again, as the first huge stones are rolled into their places, as the foundation was laid, there was this group of older folks that were working uh, on this, on the temple, the new temple, day after day, straining their backs, sweating it out. But then they're looking at the work, and suddenly, they start. Suddenly, they start daydreaming, conjuring up images about the glory of the previous temple. And they start going, wait, 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 like this isn't shaping up to look like the original temple. This doesn't look sleek like Solomon's did. That old temple had all kinds of bling, all kinds of jewels. And he's like, this one, like just the rock and the clay and the mortar, it's just not looking like it's even shaping up to be like the last one. And in, and in Ezra 3, I, I, want you, I, I don't think I have a slide for this, but I want you to read like how, how the scene unfolds. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, they came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, praising the Lord. And they sang, giving praise to God for this, this new temple as it was being built. They were saying, God is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people, it says, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, if, uh, in, in Ezra 3 verse 12, it says, but, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people, the, the people in the surrounding communities, they couldn't even distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. See, Ezra C., we see that there's two sides that could be heard in this scene. One is shouting for joy, look at this new temple, we're getting work done. But the other side is weeping in despair. They're discouraged. There's a younger generation who doesn't know what the first temple looked like, and so they don't have the opportunity to say, man, we miss those old days because they weren't even born then. All they know is that God has delivered them. He's called them, and now they have the joy of rebuilding the temple of the Lord where his glory will shine forth. Have you ever noticed that sometimes, like in, 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 in a church, that the new believers, the new converts, will often be the ones that have the most buy-in, the most excitement? They're often the first ones that are, that'll say, like, hey, I want to show up like 15 minutes early every Sunday morning just to see like what work can be done. I'll just pray with you guys, right? This is one of the things that I love about, about being part of, of a church plant. Is in a church plant, like you've got none of us that are going, man, I wish, I, I miss how we used to do things the old days, right? 
You've got no sacred cows to topple over in a church plant. You can just search the scriptures and learn from others. Seek to make disciples in our context, in our culture, together for a new generation. And see, in, 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 in Haggai 2 and in, in Ezra 3, the older people, they were weeping because they're like, man, we missed the old temple. We missed that old one. This one kind of stinks. It's not shaping up to what we thought it would be. So what's the use? We're wasting our time. And Ezra says that their bitterness spreads over into others, eventually spreads into the younger generation so that eventually everyone just quits again. They made it like four to five weeks in and then all of a sudden they're discouraged, they're derailed, and then everyone just quits again. Consider again, could that happen to us? Can that happen to you? Will you start to lose perspective of the life that God has called you to as a Christian? Lose perspective of your mission and your purpose in the world as a disciple of Jesus to where discouragement starts to creep in and you're tempted to just quit or to be apathetic or to grow bitter. Consider the question, when does discouragement start to creep in for you? When does discouragement start to creep in for you? Maybe it's when you're investing time and work and, and energy into a ministry, like only, only to get discouraged that, that your work isn't turning out like, like you had hoped, that you'd expected. I remember this time where uh, just like a few years ago when I, I started up my, my, my home office uh, in, our, in our new home, I wanted to build like this. I had this dream of just building uh, these shelves that would go uh, wall to wall and floor to, to ceiling. And I was like, I'm going to build them on my own. And so I went on Pinterest, like Googled a couple things. I figured out how do I build a shelf like this? And I, I went to, to, to Lowe's and bought like these huge planks of, of uh, board. Um, I was a little slow at this project, so these planks were uh, kind of laying uh, in, in our garage. And so what I didn't know, because I'm not like the handiest person, uh, is that uh, the wood, like if you don't like sand it, did you just say it's true? Thanks, dude. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I didn't know is that when you, if you don't like sand and, and seal the wood, it's going to start to bow, Right? So you guys didn't tell me that. So, so my, my, the wood, the planks started to, to, to bone, and I've got, uh, I've got like all, all, my, all, my, all my weights like just to try and flatten it as, as best I could, and then I'm trying to sand it and seal it so I don't have to spend money and, and another trip on, on getting uh, new, new planks. Uh, and I got to this place where I'm just like, dude, this is too hard. Should I, should I just pay someone to do this, right? Should I just, should I just give up on this project? But I, I, I pushed through that. And, and, and was able to flatten the, the boards, like a, a little, kind of get them, bend them back in, into shape and, and seal them. And, and now, I mean, it's, it, it, it looks, I mean, the bookshelf look, looks like pretty cool. I mean, from across the room. And if you go like right up to them, like, it, you, you can see it's like all janky. Uh, and they're still bowing, so I don't know. Uh, maybe you guys can tell me how to fix that. 
But maybe that's the kind of thing that makes you want to not try, right? Maybe that's the thing, kind of thing that discourages you when, when your work isn't turning out the way that you'd hoped. Or maybe for you, it's not so much like an image of an old glorious temple that comes to mind, but maybe a previous season of life when you felt, felt like you were spiritually just on back then, fired up back then. And you're not, you're not feeling that right, right now. You think of a time back when you were riding that spiritual high from like that awesome women's retreat or that men's retreat that you went on years ago and, 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 and you're just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling that right now and so I, I'm just feeling discouraged or apathetic. Maybe you're here at our janky little church plant and you've been here for a little while serving on a team and you're like, man, I miss my old church when we had a building and we didn't have to set stuff up. I do too sometimes. <laughs> or maybe you feel like the work that you're putting in isn't making just a real difference. Like you're, you're, you're wondering, like, who am I? Who am I? I'm not a Solomon. I can't build something glorious like that. And so you start comparing yourself to, to others and you get discouraged. And you just want to like drop your aspirations altogether. Where, where are you on that list of things? What does discouragement, when, when does discouragement start to creep in for you? What is it that discourages you that starts to blur your kingdom perspective? You see, God is not content to leave these people weeping in their discouragement. He pursues them. He sends Haggai to them again and again and again. He is not content to leave them weeping in their discouragement. And so this leads us now to our second point. I want you to see how they were in, in, encouraged by empowering truths. I want you to see in the rest of these verses how they were actually encouraged. They were fired up again by some empowering truths. God is too good to let them give up on their true purpose, on their true mission. He loves them too much. He's too good to them to not have them participate in true human flourishing. And so in verse 4, the message from Haggai continues. He says, yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Zerubbabel was their civic leader. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, their spiritual leader. And then he says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I want you to zero in now on that little word towards the end of this verse. A simple command from the Lord when he tells them, he bids them to work. The people the people were discouraged. They were saying, like, our work is lame compared to what Solomon did before. And God says, no, your work matters. Your work matters. I wouldn't command you to work. I wouldn't command you to keep at it, to plod forward if I didn't have big plans for it. You see, other people, they, they, they were bitter. They were like, God, God, why does this temple look, look kind of lame? And God's like, no, it's not lame. Your work matters. 
So I want you to continue, work at, I'm with you. And so that's, that's the first uh, empowering truth that they're encouraged by is that uh, their work matters to God. Be encouraged by that this morning. Your work matters to God. Now let's jump forward, uh, New Testament really quick, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If you're familiar with Ephesians 2, we spent a lot of time uh, uh, in this passage uh, for multiple weeks through our Amazing Grace uh, series. Uh, but in Ephesians 2, if you remember, it's that, 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 that chapter, that passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul just like kind of gushes forth and goes on about just the beauty of God's grace, how he brought us from death to life by grace, by faith. Like we didn't do that, God did that. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive in Christ. And, and at the end of this passage in Ephesians 2 verse, verse 10, he caps that, 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 that time of gushing uh, and, and, and he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, born again in Christ Jesus for good works, which God actually prepared beforehand for you to walk in, that we should walk in them. You see, Paul's word for workmanship here, it's this Greek word poema, where we get our English word poem from. And so he's saying, look, if you're in Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then your life is like a poem. It's like this masterful, creative work spilling from the heart and mind of God. You are his poema. You are his workmanship. What this means is that if you are in Christ, then you're not just forgiven of your past, of your sins, as wonderful as that is. You're not just forgiven of your past and your sins, but you're also made new. You're given gifts and a purpose and a place in the church, and you're sent out into the world to be ambassadors of the hope and grace, uh, uh, the, the hope and grace of the gospel to just a lost and broken world. That is something that all of us as Christians are, are called to and equipped for by the Spirit of God. I want you to, to hear this. Don't underestimate what your small act of faithfulness could accomplish in the hands of God. Don't ever underestimate what it means for God to call you his poema, his workmanship. Don't underestimate what a small act of faithfulness can accomplish. Don't underestimate the positive impact that you can have on others through the Spirit of God. You see, it goes both ways. The, the bitterness of the older workers led to an entire remnant quitting the work. But in the same way, the encouragement of a few, the faithfulness of a few can have a profound impact. That's why the encouragement to be strong is first given to Zerubbabel and to Jehozadak, the two leaders, and then to all the people because faithfulness can be caught by example. Don't underestimate what a small act of your faithfulness can do in the hands of God. Here's a sobering question. 
I want you to think on that. I want you to look at this question. Think on this. If everyone had faith like you, what would this church look like? If, if everyone around you, if everyone in this church had faith like you, what would this church look like? If everyone in this, this church had the level of commitment that you have, what would this look like? If everyone in this church gave with the level of generosity that you gave, what would this church look like? If others loved, served, encouraged, sat with, ministered to, the way that you do, what would this look like? You see, God does not want you to underestimate what the smallest act of your faithfulness could do and what could it accomplish for his glory and for the good of others. I mean, if, this, if King's Cross is, is, is your home church, this question is for you to sit on, is for you to pray on. If you're, if you're a visitor, if you're still kind of checking this whole Jesus thing out, like I'm not talking to you right now. We're just glad that you're here as our, as our guests, and we would love to be uh, uh, just the kind of people that could serve you and, and to welcome you. But for the rest of us, where this is our home, where this is our family, like, man, what would, what would it look like? if we all had the type of faith that God was calling them to in Haggai 2. So number one, your work matters to God. Number two, he says, God is with you. He encourages them with this empowering truth. God is with you. We see this in verse four. He says, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. Don't be discouraged. This is the pep talk that God's giving the people that he gave them uh, also in chapter 1. It's the same pep talk that he's giving them. Work, don't give up, for I am with you. And man, there might be some of us sitting here that are like, that's it? <laughs> like that's it God's first argument for why they should take courage for why they should work why they should fear not is that he is with them I wonder is that enough motivation for you this morning is that enough motivation for faithfulness for you this morning that God is with you now, I, w I don't want to belabor this point because we kind of touched on it last week, but I really believe that we can never exhaust the beauty of this truth. We're going to, I mean, we're going to really dig into this truth in our Advent series in, in December, our Christmas series, when we just consider what does it mean for God to be with us through Christ. But I want you to think about the power in that promise. God. God. The Lord says to these people, I am with you. I, the Lord, am with you. 
Do you know what you get when you join God in his work of making disciples? Do you know what you get when you follow God? You get God. You get God himself. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? I mean, I think that's a pretty good deal. Let's ask, like, is that enough for me? Is that enough for you? Like, if you're like, okay, so I get a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, but, but I mean, what else do I get, right? If that's your question, then you don't get it. You see, God doesn't promise us earthly blessings, Man, it, it, it boggles my mind that like the most, the most uh, best-selling like New York Times, like uh, Christian books that, that make the top of the list uh, are, 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 are things that tell you that your best life, you get that now because of Jesus. That, you don't see that in the scriptures. God doesn't promise us earthly blessings now. He doesn't promise that following him won't be hard. It's actually the opposite. He says, if you follow me, look, it's going to get harder for you. That's the promise. He says, you might get persecuted because you're fo- people might think you're weird, right? You're going to get accused, belittled by our spiritual enemy, the devil. You're going to get convicted of things that you used to love that you're going to start to now, now hey, and you're going to be at, at war with, with your own flesh. It's actually going to get harder for you. So why would anyone follow God? <laughs> why would anybody follow Jesus? What's the return on investment on that? You get God. You'll have God. Is that enough? There's this, there's this psalm, uh, uh, psalm, psalm 73, uh, written by uh, this, this guy named, named Asaph. And, and he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's writing uh, uh, in this, this psalm, just really just kind of ticked, kind of lamenting to God. He's like, God, like, I'm here following you. And it seems like my life is all out of sorts. And I've got my neighbors down the street there that, that I mean, that, like, they're just, like, proverbially flipping you the bird. Like, every new moment, like, they're living in open rebellion to you. They're actually flaunting it. And it seems like they have all this prosperity. It seems like they have everything that they need and that they desire. And he's like, what gives? Why is it like, like, I'm the one who's committed myself, who's covenanted to follow you, and it's just constantly hard for me while it seems like they're getting blessed. They have their best life now. And he laments for like just over 20 verses, multiple stanzas, and he finally comes to this conclusion towards the end of the psalm. I love the honesty that we have in the scriptures. You writers of the scripture are not, are not afraid to be honest about their frustrations. God can handle our frustrations. He can handle our hard questions. And at the end of Psalm 73, he comes to this epiphany and he says in verse 25, but, but, but God, who am I? Whom have I? in heaven but you 
after lamenting, after complaining, after whining, just honestly, just about his frustrations and his sadness and how he's feeling, he says, God, at the end of the day, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God, but, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion, my lot forever. God plus nothing equals everything. God plus nothing equals everything. And so this promise, this truth that the Lord of hosts, that the Lord God Almighty is with them, empowered them, made all the difference for them because God plus nothing equals everything. This promise is the same encouraging truth that he gave them in chapter one. But here now, I want you to see that he adds this this sort of special bit that um, we see in verse five. This is the third empowering truth. Not only is God with you, but God is for you. God is for you. God is not just with us, he's for us. We see this uh, again in the end of verse four and going into verse five where he says, excuse me, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And what is, what is he talking about there? He's referring to the great exodus out of Egypt. When God delivered them uh, under the leadership of Moses from the grip of Pharaoh. When he suspended the natural order to lead his people across the floor of the Red Sea. That deliverance was not a mere work of man. That was a work of God. It was supernatural. It was miraculous. It blew their minds. That story was heard for miles, for generations. Only the Lord of hosts, the maker of heaven and earth, the, the, the Lord of hosts, the commander of heaven's armies, only he could accomplish such an epic deliverance. And so God reminds them of that. Because for them, that is the covenant that established with clarity with clear perspective, God's special relationship with them. That is the covenant that established God as their redeemer, as their savior. Not just as this, this, this uh, distant creator, but as an involved redeemer and savior. The covenant that told them, on your worst day, when all is going wrong, even when all your enemies surround you, look back to this day. You will look back on this covenant to that event to remind yourselves that I am for you. To remember God is for us. And that means for us today, for the New Testament church today, like when we're serving Jesus and his church, when we're seeking to reach the lost and make disciples for the glory of God and the good of others, that's our version of building the temple. That's our version of the mission of participating in the mission of God. When we're serving Jesus and his church in this way and you start to think, man, this is hard. Church is hard. Faithfulness is hard. 
faithfully following Jesus says, I have to die to myself to follow him? I don't even know if I'm making a real difference here. You're starting to lose clarity. Then hear the voice of the Lord in this passage saying, I am with you. I am for you. I'm the one who delivered you not only from physical slavery like in the Exodus, but from spiritual slavery like Ephesians 2 tells us. I'm the one who freed you, God says, and brought you from death into life, from an orphan to adopting you into my forever family. God is saying to to you, he's saying to King's Cross Church, you are my workmanship, you're my poema. My workmanship, and before time even began, I knew you, and I had good works in mind for you to walk in. You're part of my plan, so don't get derailed, don't get distracted, don't get discouraged. I know what I'm doing. You might not think it matters, but it does, and I am with you, and I am for you. Remember what I've done for you. I was faithful to bring you from there to now, and I am faithful to complete it. So God's encouragement to us this morning, he's saying, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Look to remember my promises. I am yours and you are mine. Does that encourage you this morning? Does that encourage you this morning? You see, some of us, like, we want to chase the spiritual high. We want, to, we want the fanfare. We want the platform. We want all the goods. There's this, there's this story in the Gospel of Luke. I forget exactly what chapter it is, but all of Jesus' disciples, he sends them out to do ministry. And they come back and they're like, Jesus, like, did, we did this. We performed these miracles. We healed these people. We, 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 we exercised like, these demons. We did all of these things. And, and Jesus, and like, isn't, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus is like, hey, like, you know, it's, it's cool that you're excited about that, but don't really get most excited about that. Get excited that your names are written in the book of life. Get excited about the bigger picture, the transcendent picture. Don't get caught up in this moment. Remember where you came from and remember where you're headed. God is with you. He's for you. He's going to work through you. The last thing that we see In the last few verses, probably the most encouraging verses, is that he gives them a promise of future glory. He gives them a picture like Jesus did to his disciples in that that story in, in Luke, that incident. God, through Haggai, gives these people a vision, a promise of their future glory. We read about that in verses six through nine. Look at them with me. Look at these verses. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven's armies, yet once more, 
In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be even greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God is saying to the people, he's like, look, I know that you're discouraged. I can see that you're discouraged. I can see into your hearts about why you're discouraged. So let me make a promise to you. Let me make clear your vision again. Your kingdom perspective. He says the glory of this temple, this janky temple that you're embarrassed about right now, this glory of this temple is going to be to where it eventually surpasses the old one that you're missing. And through this temple, God will offer peace to the nations. You know how this prophecy was fulfilled? In a couple ways. 500 years later, right before Jesus started his earthly ministry, King Herod rebuilt uh, this temple. He kind of added some upgrades to this temple. He upgraded the temple to the nines, to where it shined brighter than even back in Solomon's days. To this day, we have archaeologists that are just looking at, at what's left of, of that temple, looking at the big rocks in the bottom of, of, of the temple, the foundation. And to this day, we've got archaeologists. They're like scratching their heads, just befuddled and amazed at how did they get these large, beautiful stones in their places. We hardly have cranes that can handle that kind of thing, machinery that can handle that kind of thing today. How did they do that? 2,500 years ago. So think about this. What, what if I told you, what if I told you that the fruit of the work that you're doing now won't actually come to its most beautiful fruition for 500 years? What if I told you that the hard work that you're doing won't even pay off like in, until like 50 years? Would it still be worth it? Would you still consider it a joy and privilege to participate in this sovereign work of God? I hope so. Man, when Oscar and I were in uh, Reno uh, a couple weeks ago at the Acts uh, 29 uh, church planning conference, um, there was this, this one night uh, where uh, a, a group of us, uh, just church leaders and, and pastors, uh, were uh, smoking cigars in the, in the lobby of this hotel we were, because Reno, right? <laughs> um, uh, so we were inside uh, uh, just uh, talking about life and ministry, and um, uh, I, I met uh, this guy, uh, this guy named, named, named Robert, uh, who, uh, as a waitress, came by to see if we, we needed anything out there in the lobby, um, um, he just starts witnessing to her. He's like, hey, how's your day going? 
He's like, is everyone treating you uh, well? She's like, yeah, these are like the nicest people that have like ever come in here. And he's like, yeah, like a lot of us are like pastors and leaders of like just churches throughout uh, the Pacific uh, region. We're part of this network. And, and he's like, we, you know, we're just, we're just here to learn how to be uh, healthy leaders, how to lead healthy churches. And, and, and he's, like, I, I, he's like, I'm glad to hear that, that, that people have been nice to you. And he's like, yeah, they've been so nice to us. Uh, or she's been like, I, they've been so nice to me. And, and he's like, uh, you know, that's because like God has just made such a big difference in our lives. He's made a profound difference in, in our lives. He's like, he, he starts sharing his testimony, sharing his story, and starts telling her, like, man, I, he's like, look, we just met, but I hope and pray that you can come to know Jesus in that same way, too. And she's like, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, like, I go to church sometimes, but like, yeah. And he's like, no, like, like seriously. He's like, I, I, I really hope that you can come to know Jesus in the same way, too. And, and he starts to tell her, and I'm listening. Like, we're in the same group of people. I start listening to him, and, and, and um, he tells, tells, tells her how, you know, he used to be this pastor of this small reformed church that, uh, and then a, a few years ago, he, he found out that he had a, a, a tumor in his, in his head. And that developed to uh, a form of, of, of cancer that is just aggressive. And it is currently eating away at like the, just the front uh, side of, of his brain. And he started to lose some motor skills, some basic motor skills. He started to lose like critical uh, 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 thinking, uh, the ability to critically think. And, and, so, and so he can't he can't really study for sermons anymore. Uh, and, and so he uh, so he retired early. He's like in his 50s. Uh, he's, he retired early from pastoral ministry. Uh, and, he, and he's just telling her like, you know, God has given me two years left to live. And I can't do much because of my brain, just the way my mind's working. He's like, I can't really do much with these next two years. But man, I have an unshakable hope in my Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't wait to be with him. And so I can't do much, but I can't have this conversation with you. And he tells this waitress, he tells Bree, he's like, Bree, I, I, I want you to know Jesus the way that I do. He's like, if, if, if God gave me brain cancer just so that I could have the bravery and see, seize a moment like this in a conversation with you, that would lead to you having that same hope in Jesus and you being part of this forever family? He tells her, then it was worth it. It was worth God giving me cancer. And she just starts weeping. We connect her with the, this church, Living Stones, that we know uh, in, in the city of Reno. And, um, you know, it, it looks like she's going to get uh, connected with some good people over there. But, man, I was so moved and challenged by our brother Robert. I want to be like him when I grow up. I want to be like him now. This guy doesn't have a huge platform. He doesn't have a huge ministry. He doesn't have this fancy website, but he, he can't think like he used to, but he has Jesus. He has Jesus. He knows the Lord is 
with him. The Lord is for him. The Lord has a plan uh, and a purpose through him. He has Jesus and he's like, you know what, that's enough. That's enough for me and I want that, he told Bree. He said, I want that to be enough for you. And because that's enough for him, his life is making a profound impact for the kingdom. He's like, for the next two to three years that God gives me, he's like, I, I want to use every opportunity, every conversation, every person I meet, I want them to have the same hope that I have. He's like, I know where I'm going. I want them to know too. I want you to see what this Old Testament passage foretells about Jesus, about our Jesus who's more than enough. When the Lord says in verse 7, when he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, this temple with glory, and in this place I will give peace to the world. That is talking about Jesus. That is talking about our more than enough Jesus. You see, centuries later, Jesus would visit this very temple in its upgraded state because of Herod. Jesus would visit this very temple with all its fancy upgrades, but he is the one that filled the temple with the glory of the Lord. When he entered this temple, when he ministered in this temple, preached in this temple, he filled the temple with the glory of the Lord. And when the religious leaders tried to exploit the poor in this area at the temple, he cleansed it of their vile ways and drove them out. This is his temple. This is his house, his father's house. And in that temple, that temple Centuries later is where he proclaimed and prophesied his own death. Centuries after Haggai, this is the temple where he would enter and start proclaiming. And he would prophesy the meaning of his own death. That it was right around the corner. And in his death, in that death, he fulfilled the meaning of the temple altogether. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, the glory of the Lord is no longer contained to a building, but it is found in his nail-pierced, resurrected body. Jesus, the Son of God, came for us, lived for us, died for us, us, rose for us, and now invites us to walk in newness of life. Jesus is the one who ultimately invites all of us, invites the nations to know what it means to know him, whose nickname is Emmanuel, God with us, to know him, the God who is for us who emptied it all, took on the form of a servant, and went to the cross for us. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? In a moment, we're going to 
we're going to receive communion during these next two songs. And as you're receiving communion, I want you to think about that question. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for us? Are you nibbling at the table of the world? Or are you going to receive his invitation to feast at his table? When you hold that bread, when you take that cup, think about him. Is he enough for you? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.